I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Friday, July 9th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Mississippi's Bureau of Investigation shifts its policy on video footage of police-involved shootings. Then, the future of telehealth in the Deep South. And an update on the fallout of the February freeze. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Video footage plays a key role in shaping public perception of police violence. That's been true from the beating of Rodney King to the murder of George Floyd. The Mississippi Bureau of Investigation, however, has long resisted efforts to make footage of officer-involved shootings publicly available in the state. That may now change. Public Safety Commissioner Sean Tindall has implemented a new set of directives that he says will increase transparency in police violence cases. Commissioner Tindall speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. In prior administrations, the policy had generally been that all public records requests would be responded to with a uh, denial letter in which no no documentation, no reports, and, and no video footage would be turned over to the public from any officer-involved shooting or other investigation in which NBI was involved. And so when I came on board, I guess a year ago, and over the course of the last year, and particularly uh, with the legislation that was passed designating the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation as the primary agency to to investigate officer-involved shootings across the state, Uh, I believe it was a good time for us to reevaluate that policy in in an effort to be more transparent. And and then also when you looked at uh, what was occurring nationwide in in regards to officer-involved shootings, to try to handle that on a more uniform basis, particularly within the state, on how those types of reports and and footage were, were released to the public. And so what are your hopes to see whenever uh, you all begin to release this footage? Um, what would the ideal you know, situation come out of this policy? I, I believe that transparency, particularly in these types of incidents, it, it, it creates more faith in the uh, criminal justice process by the general public, and it eliminates the misinformation 
that can be spread and, and the conspiracy theories that often develop when when such evidence is, is kept from the public to consider. And, you know, and I also felt that in these incidences uh, that the family members of those uh, involved should have an opportunity to view it as well. And so it just seemed like it was the right thing to do. In the past, it looked like a lot of cities had power in terms of, you know, if this would be released uh, in terms of, I believe there's been some cases in the past where cities have been able to release the body cam footage while Bureau of Investigation did not. Where does this fit in in terms of setting a standard for releasing materials to the public? Well, and again, it's trying to kind of create a uniform policy. In the past, the cities had the ability and still, frankly, have the ability to release whatever information they want to release from their files. Our goal is twofold. Um, one is to uh, protect the integrity of the case and, you know, allow the videos and, and any footage and the findings of fact established by the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation to be presented to a grand jury in a fair and non-biased and impartial process. And we feel like the best time to release that information is once it has been presented to a grand jury um, and if they've made the decision to not proceed with it as a criminal matter to then release it, uh, or should the matter then be indicted and criminal charges be filed, that the defendant in that case have an opportunity for a fair and impartial trial and it not be tainted by the disclosure of evidence to the general public prior to the trial. And keeping in mind that if there is a ever a criminal indictment in such a case, we wouldn't want the jury, potential jurors, to be tainted by evidence being released too soon, uh, and we want to protect the jury trial process in, in those cases. Where do you think this will have an effect on in the court of public opinion, where people might might see this footage either in context or out of context and start to or become very outspoken on that matter, similar to what we saw with, you know, uh, cases over the past year? Number one, I believe that transparency is always important. And, and when you have transparency, it creates accountability. And, and accountability is always in government a good thing. So when these items are released, it certainly puts the Mississippi Bureau of Investigation and, and the DA's office that would present the case up for scrutiny as to whatever that outcome uh, might be determined by the grand jury. But the reality is, uh, I think it does much more to protect officers because it removes a lot of the misinformation that is spread w when the items are not released. And so my goal is to create a better trust with law enforcement across the state as it pertains to dealing with the public, and particularly as it pertains to dealing with family members that are unfortunately caught up in these situations. And I wanted to be fair to the family that we met with them prior to the distribution of any such video evidence or reports so that they would have an opportunity to see it before the media would put it out on you know, any, any other platform. What do you think this uh, additional transparency could mean for law enforcement agencies across Mississippi? Well, and, and I've, I've had an opportunity to travel the state and meet with sheriffs and meet with police chiefs. And, and as we've mentioned, a variety of policies and, and the way it was handled was done differently from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. I, I think all in all, they, they feel like some uniformity in the process is much needed. And even even the ones that uh, might not agree with, with the decision to provide the, uh, the the video footage also acknowledge that, you know, in the world that we live in today, particularly 
uh, as more and more of these have come to light, it's something that the general public has demanded and, and something that we feel ultimately will protect the officers, uh, particularly the ones uh, in which the situation unfortunately demanded that, that those actions be taken to protect the officer's safety. When it comes to footage, will it be any like censorship involved uh, to protect either identities of, like, say, minors or uh, other parties that sure. might have been victims? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the reality is that we, we, we have the discretion into what we provide and don't provide. And, and as it stands now, we won't be providing the names of witnesses in, in these reports. And we'll remove any personal information related to the individual social security numbers or other identifying information that those individuals wouldn't want out to the general public. And, and the reason why we, we want to do that um, is that whenever these incidences occur, we want the general public to feel like they can come forward and provide a statement and that they won't be thrown into the public spotlight later. And, and we, will, we, we want them to feel free to come in. And if they see something, say something and, and, and let officials know without fear. Is there anything else we haven't touched on that you'd like to tell Mississippians or have just clarify about this new policy? You know, I, I think, again, I appreciate the state of Mississippi. I mean, it, it's been a uh, it's been an honor to serve in this position, and particularly knowing that Mississippi is a law enforcement-minded state and they support their law enforcement. Uh, with that comes great trust. And, and so I think that, again, creating a transparency also creates accountability, and that feathers the trust that the general public has in law enforcement. Sean Tyndall is commissioner of the Department of Public Safety. Commissioner Tyndall, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Coming up, telehealth usage has exploded during the COVID-19 pandemic, and the trend will likely continue, but some barriers still must be addressed. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. Whether it's a Zoom appointment with a therapist or a phone call with a specialist, telehealth usage has gone way up during the pandemic. And some experts say the option has increased health care access in rural areas, which are more prominent across the Gulf South. But many barriers around telehealth remain. Shalina Chatlani of the Gulf States Newsroom has this story. In the post-pandemic world, some life changes are likely to stick around like the way remote work is becoming more mainstream than ever. May Kwong with the Center for Connected Health Policy thinks telehealth is here to stay too. Telehealth utilization, even though it dropped from like the highs at the beginning of the pandemic, it is still higher than what it was pre-pandemic. Telehealth became a necessity while many people were sheltering at home. The nonprofit group Fair Health tracks billions of private hospital bills. Between December 2019 and December 2020, it found that the number of telehealth claims had increased by nearly 3,000 percent. And that's due partially, of course, to the more flexible policies that are still in place in a lot of jurisdictions. It used to be difficult for hospitals and clinics to bill insurance for telehealth visits. But during the pandemic, many policies changed, so those charges were allowed. Post-pandemic, that flexibility could go away, and the Gulf South might feel it the most. The region is more rural than the rest of the country, with more people spread out far away from health centers. And CDC data show that people here often deal with multiple chronic health conditions. That's why hospitals like the University of Mississippi Medical Center 
and the University of Alabama at Birmingham have invested in telehealth long before the pandemic. You can see them face-to-face, and if you have any problems, you can talk to them. That's 47-year-old Patrick Stoltz, who has been using telehealth since 2015. Stoltz has kidney disease and has been on dialysis for about 10 years. He sees a doctor at UAB, but lives over an hour away in rural Haleyville, Alabama. He's had a lot of health emergencies, and since he's familiar with the technology, telehealth gives him peace of mind in between his monthly in-person visits to check his heart rate and get his blood work done. Now over a phone, all we do is just answer questions like if I'm doing okay, if I'm having any swelling, or if my sight's okay. Stoltz's doctor, nephrologist Eric Wallace, started a telehealth program for his rural patients. He says it's not always convenient. Other patients have faced a lot of hurdles. Number one is I don't have the money for a phone. Number two is I have a phone, but I live in an area that doesn't have internet. Problem number three is I have a phone. I have the money to use internet. I don't know how to use it. Wallace says some studies show patients who would usually skip out on seeing the doctor altogether are more likely to get medical attention if telemedicine is an option. But others might want to go to the doctor and just need help with transportation or getting insurance. He says telehealth cannot and should not be used for all types of care. Dialysis care, they have to come once a month, right? They have to get labs. And so my telehealth was always about giving patients choice. For me, telehealth was not as much I'm going to do a better job. It was I want my patients to have the best quality of life. The federal government has acknowledged that medical facilities may need more help reducing telehealth barriers. The U.S. Department of Agriculture announced in February that it's investing over $40 million in telemedicine and distance learning infrastructure in rural areas. More than $5 million of that is going toward telemedicine projects in Mississippi and Alabama. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Shalina Chutlani. The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership between WWNO in New Orleans, WBHM in Birmingham, and Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Coming up, more of the state becomes eligible for disaster assistance. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. A contractor ever tell you the price of something and it sounds so high you think, eh, maybe I'll try it myself. Some jobs just aren't that difficult, and yes, you can do it. If you want to find out how to do those things, listen to Fix It 101, podcast everywhere. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Yesterday, FEMA designated five additional Mississippi counties as eligible for public disaster assistance. The counties in question are Clay, Holmes, Quitman, Webster, and Wilkinson. They, along with several other municipalities, will qualify for federal help in managing the costs of infrastructure repairs after February's ice storms. Mallory White is External Communications Director for the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. Speaking with MPB's Michael Guidry, she lays out why some parts of the state have only now been green-lighted for assistance. It really is just damage assessments, and it's not uncommon for MEMA to ask FEMA for an extension when getting and doing those damage assessments, especially for a disaster like this. Winter weather and even flooding take a little bit longer to assess. And so according to FEMA, what happens is once an event officially ends, 
So this event ended February 19th. We have 30 days to request some type of assistance, and we have to give them a certain number of counties or give them the name of counties that we're requesting for. But that doesn't mean after those 30 days that we've finished. And so sometimes we have to ask for an extension. And so that's what we did. We asked for an extension for these counties. So because they were reporting significant enough damage that met their damage threshold, we just had to go in and validate. We had to get FEMA out here to validate to ensure that they would be eligible. So sometimes it just takes the damage assessment process a little bit longer. And for this type of damage, it it, it does take longer because this is damage that's in the ground, such as water pipes and things like that, something that's a little bit different from your tornadoes and your hurricanes. It takes a little bit longer to assess. So we were able to get these five counties added. So we now have a total of 36 counties in the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians. Um, They are all now eligible to apply for federal public assistance. Now, you mentioned tornadoes and Sadly, a lot of some Mississippians are familiar with filing for assistance for personal damage to their homes and everything. The additions of these counties and the and then greater the greater impact, the 36 counties and the Band of Choctaw Indians in total, are these funds for personal assistance or, or is this money that is going to those municipalities and those counties to handle the things like you said, broken pipes and other infrastructure damages that occurred during the storm? Yes, thank you for this question. It is a very big common misconception, and it's simply because of the name. So public assistance is actually for your municipalities and your government agencies and certain private nonprofits. So public assistance will not be for your homeowners and business owners. Whenever we talk about assistance for homeowners and business owners, we will talk to them about individual assistance and SBA assistance. Unfortunately, those two types are not available for the winter weather disaster. The only type of assistance available right now is your public assistance, and that is for your government, your locals, your municipalities, um, your cities and your county board of supervisors to apply for this type of assistance. So this will go towards infrastructure, maybe rebuilding some roads, fixing pipes that are in public buildings. This is not for your homeowners, unfortunately. We went from a hard freeze in February to last month in June, just a week of what seemed like endless rain for the northern part of the state. Where is Mississippi in regards to that as far as eligibility for relief from from FEMA from FEMA you know those farmlands that were that were damaged the flooding that occurred has a disaster been declared there what is the status on that Not at this time. There has not been a request for a major disaster declaration at this time. Um, We are currently still in the process of trying to validate damage and you know how I said earlier when Flooding damage and winter weather damage take a little bit longer to do than your regular tornado type stuff because it's a little bit harder to see. First off, we have to wait for the water to recede so our teams can safely get into the area. And then secondly, there are certain measurements that we have to follow based on FEMA guidelines, FEMA criteria, FEMA parameters, I should say, that in order for a county to be considered for some type of individual assistance, FEMA looks at the number of completely destroyed homes and the number of major damaged homes. 
And that's what our teams are looking at right now. We are trying to find those homes that match that those parameters. And FEMA has very specific parameters of what is considered completely destroyed in floodwater and what is considered major damage from floodwaters. And so we've taken what the counties have given us. We've sent teams out to assess. Like I said earlier, we have 30 days from the end of the event to request some type of declaration. And so we are trying to make sure that we find the damage if there is damage before we can request this declaration. If we were to go ahead and request it now and we don't have all the variables in place, it actually will slow down the process. I know it may seem like it's being slow, it's slower right now, but it's actually, we're trying to do our due diligence and make sure that we don't miss anything in seeing if these counties are eligible for any type of federal assistance, whether it be public assistance or individual assistance or SBA assistance. I mean, already this so far, this young hurricane season, we've seemed to have dodged, missed out on two, and it's early. Just looking ahead, what advice do you have as it looks like hurricane season is kicking into high gear early and pretty significantly? It's ramping up. And what I want to tell Mississippians is do not get complacent. Yes, we have dodged a couple of bullets, but it only takes just one to completely destroy and decimate a community, a town, a county, a region. And so our big message this year is the first 72 is on you. It's actually a lesson learned from Hurricane Zeta. We had people calling hours after the storm hit, wanting food, wanting water. And the thing is, is that it actually takes at least 72 hours for state and federal resources to ramp up to get to those affected areas because we have to make sure the roads are cleared. We have to make sure staging areas are set up to give out these these types of commodities. And we actually have to know what the impact is. We have to see just how many people are without these types of commodities. So the first 72 is on you. We're asking these people to make sure you have enough food and enough water to get your family through at least 72 hours before any type of help can arrive. And if you have any special medical needs, a special diet, go ahead and take those into consideration as well whenever you're building your disaster kit. A couple of other things you can go ahead and do now. Take before pictures of your home. What does your home look like now versus what it looks like after an event? Those before pictures can come in handy. Your insurance. What is your insurance policy? What's your deductible? What does your insurance cover? Your home insurance is not flood insurance, so make sure that you have flood insurance to cover your home. Another thing that people don't even think about, but it's something to have, all those important documents, your your insurance documents, of course, but not just on your home, on your car, your health insurance. Make sure that you have copies of your tax information, too. This is something I learned recently is that they, they actually use your tax information for certain types of assistance if need be. Um, they also use your tax information or electricity bills to prove that you are in the affected area to make sure that you're not trying to do one over on somebody and defraud uh, trying to get assistance, claiming you were in an affected area whenever you weren't. So these are all little things. 
that you're not thinking about whenever the, the storm is barreling your way because you're just trying to pay attention and find out exactly how you're going to be affected. So if you go ahead and prepare now, you will be completely prepared and you will not be panicked whenever the situation actually starts to unfold. Mallory White, Director of External Affairs for the Mississippi Emergency Management Agency. All great information from February and looking ahead to hurricane season. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.